welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very pleased to say we have Nick Redding on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, Methland, The Death and Life of an American Small Town. As some of you may know, uh, this podcast is hosted at the University of Iowa, the history department at the University of Iowa, right here in Iowa City. This book is about a small town in Iowa, all wine and its problems with the drug methamphetamine. But, but the book is really about a lot more than that because the methamphetamine epidemic, if we can call it such, is really, as Nick says, a symptom of larger difficulties that the American Midwest is going through. And what I mean by that is the decline of certain light industries, um, the vertical integration of agriculture and the difficulties of the meatpacking industry. These were the enterprises that really made the American Midwest the prosperous place it was, and they, they've been in decline for a while. And again, one of the results of that is that people turn to drugs, and in this instance, crystal meth was the drug they turned to. And Nick does a terrific job of putting all of the elements of this story together so that it might begin in old wine, but it stretches into South America and Southern California and into China and into places very far afield, all of which through globalization end up affecting the 6,000-some people that live in old wine. I very much enjoyed talking to Nick today, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Nick. Hi. How are you today? I'm good. Good. Where Where are you exactly? I'm in St. Louis, Missouri. St. Louis, Missouri. Are you in St. Louis proper or a suburb of St. Louis? I am... Um, in, in the city itself. Really, that's right. That's interesting. I, I know many people who don't know St. Louis very well don't know that it has a lot of suburbs. And yes. it's, it's like when people say they're from Kansas City, they almost never are. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. And I, in, in fact, I'm not from the city of St. Louis <laughs> yeah. either. I'm from the county, which is this gargantuan yeah, exactly. sort of thing. Exactly. Well, I should tell our listeners that we have Nick Redding on the show today, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, Methland. The Death and Life of an American Small Town. I should say by way of introduction that we have a big tent here at New Books in History. And uh, if it's about the past and it is well-written and interesting, we will probably treat it. And in this case, uh, we're going to be talking about events that, while they started many decades ago, uh, really uh, transpired. That is, the story transpired in the 80s, 90s, and the early knots. And Nick does a terrific job of, of telling this particular history. There are a lot of journalists who I would call historians, um, and I think Nick is one of them because he does a little digging and he finds out exactly what the historical origins of what in this case was, um, I don't know whether to call it a meth epidemic, but certainly uh, some tragic instances uh, in which meth played a part. So uh, having said that, Nick, let me ask you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, um, I, uh, I'm a journalist. I live in, in St. Louis, like we said, and, and am from sort of the general area. And, uh, I, let's see, I went to, I left here when I was 18 and I went to college in Chicago and then lived in Colorado and then uh, Chile and Patagonia for a while and then I lived in New York for 13 years and just just moved back last year. Mm-hmm. And how did you become interested in this sort of um, long form, as they call it in the trade, journalistic writing? Um, I, you know, when I, I, I was a, a English major in college and, and a, had a, I don't know if it was, I guess, a minor or something in, in creative writing. And when I left school, I figured that I would never write anything because I couldn't imagine how anybody could really make a living. And, and w- one way or another, I ended up in, in New York and, and, um, actually had a fellowship to NYU for fiction writing, not because I wanted to be a fiction writer, but because I wanted to get to New York and there was a little money offered for this fellowship. And I took a job as a magazine editor and um, eventually after editing other people's stories, I decided that I would like to do the writing myself and that because I was no good as a fiction writer, I would try journalism. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
did, did how did the um, let's 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 move into a discussion of, of the book. What, how, how did the um, idea uh, for the book um, occur to you? Um, you know, and there's it, it's a little bit of a of a long uh, story that I will try not to make too long, but um, that's okay. We have the time. <laughs> okay, good. Um, uh, back in 1999. Um, I was living in, I wrote, my first book was about, I spent a year living with a family of, of gauchos, of, which these semi-nomadic cowboys, and I was in Chile and Patagonia, mostly people think of Argentine Patagonia. In any event, um, I uh, was literally sitting against a fence one day in Patagonia, and a gaucho came riding up. He was taking some horses over the Argentine border to sell, and we started talking to one another and throughout the course of a couple hours of talking he said that he had a brother who lived in Idaho and I thought that was impossible I mean this is a place where there's not even a road never mind consciousness of the United States or specifically Idaho I thought and he said no 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 there's a rancher there who my brother works for so when I got back from Patagonia I was curious about how a guy how a gaucho kid would end up there. So I called this rancher, and sure enough, he had a guy working for him by the same name as the gaucho had said. So I went out to, it turns out there's this whole importation business of these gaucho kids to work on American ranches. So I went out to a place called Gooding, Idaho to look at all this and write a magazine story about it. When I got to Gooding, um, the very first night I went to the bar to have a hamburger and uh, the place was like a a free-for-all. It was a Friday night and and, um, everybody was very obviously high on something. And I didn't know what meth was. I had no idea where it came from or anything. And that's what this town of Gooding, Idaho, 1,286 people, was... um, just awash with methamphetamine and I was sort of I mean I was fascinated I I didn't know how that could be or why and uh, so uh, eventually I I, I spent a lot of time in Gooding same as I would ultimately do in Old Wine, Iowa uh, following some characters lives tried to sell a book nobody would buy it Um, and uh, but I couldn't really let go of the story and so eventually I ended up selling a book about um, about Old Wine, Iowa, uh, and, and the meth problem there. Mm-hmm. So it was this sort of long-term fascination that finally found a way to roost. Mm-hmm. And how did you find your way to Old Wine? Why Old Wine and not some other small community in one of these other states? You know... Um, because in between Gooding and Old Wine, I also tried to set up shop in a place near where I grew up and uh, set up shop, meaning I found a couple addicts and some people who were willing to talk. And when it came down to it, none of them were willing to let me write a book about them. And so as I searched and searched for a new place, um, I eventually ran across a, a quote in a in a newspaper by the guy who turns out to be the town doctor of old wine and i just called him on the phone and we got along very well and it turned out that he was very connected to the kinds of people that i needed to to talk to me his brother was the the public defender and uh he was friends with the prosecutor and the mayor and because he was the doctor he was the person who was saddled with taking care of all the meth addicts in town. And and really, I went to Old Wine um, because I found people who were willing to let me follow their lives uh, for, for the three and a half years that it took me to, you know, to, to, to do this book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Actually, it's funny because there's a analogous sort of things that sometimes happens in archival research. You come upon something that seems a little bit odd or perhaps promising to you, and then you fly to some place and 
look at the archive and see that pretty much everything you want is right there. Uh, yeah. It takes a long time to find that, though. It, it's only happened so, to me once, I think, in my entire scholarly career that I found something like that. Um, so I know just what you're talking about. Let's talk a little bit about the history of methamphetamine um, itself. You trace that a bit in the book. Could you help us understand that a little? Yeah, and, and you know, I think that there is... Uh, there has been and in some ways there continues to be the feeling that meth is a new drug and that in fact is, is not true. It was first synthesized in 1898 in Japan um, and um, it was um, considered by the 1920s and 1930s it was considered in the United States to be um, a, a kind of a miracle drug. There were about 27 different ailments for which meth was prescribed and the breadth of these ailments was considerable from erectile dysfunction to meth was supposed to cure alcoholism and depression and anxiety and um, the uh, eventually it was um, considered to be sort of a, like during World War II it was a uh, it was given in, in great numbers to um, soldiers, uh, U.S. soldiers, British soldiers, German soldiers, and Japan, uh, Japanese soldiers. I mean, World War II was sort of fought on methamphetamine. And the link with that is because um, meth, uh, you don't have to eat or sleep with, with meth. And so if you... If your job is to march all night and fight all day and then march all day the next night, uh, meth is sort of the perfect drug. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I imagine that some of our listeners, if they, they may not know it, but they've probably encountered other sorts of amphetamines in popular culture. For example, bennies, as they used to be called. Mm-hmm. Um, benzedrine, I think, is, is bennies. Benzedrine. Yeah. And, and, um, Methadrine is another one. Yeah, that there were actually lots of these. And then, you know, they became, <clears throat> it used to be prescribed quite frequently as a diet pill. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, Dexatrim actually yeah. uh, had had an amphetamine in it, and it was over the counter until pretty recently. And, and if I'm not incorrect, there is a Rolling Stones song about uh, amphetamine abuse uh, by women called Mother's Little, Mother's Helpers. Little Helpers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we don't think about these things as much as we d- d- as much as we probably should. But but they're they're in our culture. Another thing that people I don't think realize is that. Um, Ecstasy is a derivative of amphetamine, MDMA, yep. and uh, it, it was also synthesized, actually, this, in this instance, by German scientists at the sort of around the turn of the century, and it was given in, in one form or another to German soldiers in both World War One and World War Two. So, right. uh, the, the story of amphetamines is not a new one at all, uh, and uh, it, but, but it, and it's a it's a it's a wide ranging one. They've been they've been used very extensively for a long time, and even today, I believe it's the case that. Um, Air Force pilots are given some sort of amphetamine to increase alertness. Yeah. yeah. So the, the there's a company in, in Westchester, New York, that manufactures that, and, and they also manufacture something called desoxin, which is given to people who are morbidly obese or uh-huh. narcoleptic, and it is nothing more than methamphetamine. It's pharmaceutical methamphetamine. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, this stuff, you know, and, and it does have its uses, and we'll talk about it in a little while, you know, how, how well it works uh, and if it works at, at all. But it, it, they've been widely used, and that is because we should probably say this uh, to our listeners who don't have any experience Hopefully they don't. The sort of thing is they do actually uh, make you feel euphoric, don't they? Yeah, and that was the you know that was one reason. Uh, if you read uh, newspaper archives from the early part of the of the 20th century when methamphetamine was uh, again sort of considered this miracle drug, the 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 number one attraction was that it made everybody feel good for a very long time for 12 hours or 18 hours mm-hmm. and and that was the part of the initial attraction mm-hmm. yeah I'm reminded of a story I don't know if it's true about Sigmund Freud when he first encountered 
cocaine. Cocaine. Yes, and uh, he, he wrote some letters while on cocaine in which he said, I believe that if everyone in the world was given cocaine, there would be world peace. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so um, you can see that even very smart people can fall uh, victim to the wiles of these drugs. So yeah. um, it's, it's a long way from a lab in um, late 19th century, early 20th century Japan to old wine Iowa and cooking it up in your... Uh, bathtub or however they do it how, how do we get from the one to the other how do, how do we um, how does uh, let's say non-pharmaceutical illegal methamphetamine first make its way to the Midwest or to the United States um, and, and that's a, a great question I, I would just uh, add one more thing in terms of historical context that people you know they talk about the methamphetamine epidemic as though it is a one-time thing in the United States and a recent phenomenon. But um, after World War II in Japan, there was an enormous methamphetamine problem because they had huge stores of the drug mm. and they no longer had the soldiers to give it to. Mm -hmm. And they were an industrializing nation. They had a lot of rebuilding to, mm -hmm. to do. And Japanese workers were given mm. methamphetamine. The mm -hmm. same is true in Germany and the same is true in the United States. I mean, you think about sort of what the stake was of World War II. It was in some ways who is going to win the battle to industrialize the quickest and the most effectively and therefore dominate the world economy. And so things like the American auto industry and the American agricultural industry to some extent, these were fueled by what was the legal use of a drug that kept people awake for a long time and allowed them to work a lot. And that provides some context for how, um, you know, a small town in Iowa dating back to the 1960s and the 70s and the 80s, methamphetamine was a very acceptable part of workaday life in the meatpacking plant or amongst the long-haul truckers or the railroad workers. And... These, of course, were the industries, along with farming, that made the Midwest sort of profitable for a long time, if you will. And, and But eventually, um, methamphetamine was sort of demonized for its, what are now, very, it's a very obvious bad effect. And, but that didn't take away the idea that people still wanted it, that they were still addicted to it. And so... Um, pharmaceutical engineers who were largely based in Southern California began a black market of making a stronger illegal form of methamphetamine. When the farm crisis happened in the 1980s and a lot of Midwesterners left the Midwest to go to the booming labor markets, predominantly of Southern California, some of them got involved with these pharmaceutical industry chemists and these bike gangs that were distributing the drug and uh, they sent it home. Mm -hmm. and yeah, no, I was going to say it was, it was uh, at least to my recollection in the 1970s called crank or biker dope. What, why, right. why is that? I think because um, you know for whatever reason these bike gangs were the ones who initially went into business with these pharmaceutical company engineers um, and the bike gangs were sort of the distribution force. I mean, you know, everybody thinks of like, you know, Charles Manson and stuff like that in the 70s and 80s. And this was a, a this was a, a factor, a cultural factor throughout the Western and Midwestern United States, these bike gangs. I think it was called crank because I think they would hide the drug in the crank case of their yeah. motorcycle. Which you could do. Yeah, I can see how that could happen. That, that's that's interesting. I, I do associate it. If you read Hunter S. Thompson's book on the Hell's Angels, I'm not sure that methamphetamine comes up, but I would suspect that it does. And he's talking about the Hell's Angels of the 1960s. I, I don't really know. I don't recall the book very well. But you mentioned this interesting connection between people moving to Southern California uh, and then uh, hooking up with these... Um, uh, these these sort of rogue uh, chemists and 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 the person that uh, you talk about is if I recall correctly Lori Arnold is that right 
Yeah, and and Laurie is the sister of the comedian Tom Arnold, and um, Laurie was married to a uh, a bike gang leader of the one of the you know major sort of midwestern bike gangs. And Laurie was the, you know, so I mean, at the time, you go back to, this was in 1987, and um, by now a lot of towns just like Laurie's had been, had lost tremendous amounts of revenue because the farm crisis had forced people to foreclose, the meatpacking plant had been taken over and wages had been cut, and the railroad left. So the three bases for economic life in many of these towns, all three of them had, had gone away. People um, had a lot to feel bad about, and methamphetamine offered a you know this sort of long-lasting euphoric high. It was very very cheap, and um, and it was it was coming from California to which Lori had sort of connected herself in a, in a in a as, as a business person, um, and she became a huge provider and ultimately a manufacturer of the drug. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to come back to her for a second, but, you know, uh, there are certain ways in which my personal story interacts with the story or um, uh, crosses paths with the story that you tell. I know that I first heard of uh, meth or crystal meth in about 19, I think it was about 1983, in Iowa, actually, when I was going to college. And then I encountered it again in Arkansas, of all places. And this dovetails completely with what you say. I was working in a sawmill. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a very rough place in Fayetteville. Um, yeah. And the guys there did all kinds of what we just called it speed then. Right. It was just speed. And everybody did it before they worked their shifts. And I have to say, you know, I'm not um, exactly a wilting flower, but the manual labor that I had to do there during that summer working at the sawmill pretty much convinced me that I was not cut out for manual labor. <laughs> <laughs> but these guys would go at it for eight hours, and uh, I, I was truly astounded by, by what I saw. And, and I, did, I remember coming away thinking that you know, it was a good thing. I, and I remember they would, take, they, would take, they would take speed, and then they would shove their mouths full of uh, chewing tobacco. Yeah, it was like these, this somehow combination was a good thing. They didn't drink coffee or anything like that. They didn't eat coffee. There was speed, yeah, chewing yeah. tobacco, and they would go and work. They, they would they would work these big repetitive tasks for eight hours, and I just remember being totally astounded by this as a kind of a nineteen or twenty year old. I didn't understand yeah. how people could do it, and uh, now I do understand how people could do it largely thanks to your book. So let's pick up uh, the story again with Lori Arnold, nineteen eighty seven, and her um, uh, her uh, her uh, biker gang husband um so she begins to travel to california and bring this dope back and she finds well, she, out that there's sort of huge demand for it yeah and she in fact she um being uh sort of the brains of the operation she actually dispatches her husband to california mm -hmm. to um I'm, I'm sorry yeah it's okay don't worry about it um she uh sends her her husband to california uh every seven to ten days to bring a big load of methamphetamine back. And what she had done is, um, it, Lori's a high school, 10th grade dropout. And at the time, she was in her early 20s. Um, and she had done meth. She loved it. Uh, there was a big market for it already in the town of Ottumwa, Iowa, for the reason that, you know, like, like the sawmill that you're talking about in Fayetteville, um, these people who were doing these brutal meatpacking jobs had been doing meth for quite a while. Um, but what Lori was able to do was to hook up with the Mexican drug traffickers in Southern California who by that time had started to take over the meth business, and they were making a stronger and cheaper version of it. And so Lori wasn't satisfied to wait to, uh, she wasn't satisfied to have her connection in Des Moines, Iowa. She wanted to go right to the source. So she would send her husband, uh, himself fueled on meth, on these cross-country drives every seven to ten days to bring as much dope back as, as, as he could. Um, 
eventually she bought a car dealership and hired dozens of people to be running to California and back for her. Um, and then she decided that she didn't want to just sell meth in Iowa. She wanted to sell it everywhere. So she bought a horse farm and 52 racehorses. And in the guise of going to horse races and buying and trading and selling horses from Kentucky to North Dakota and over to Utah and into Colorado, basically all over the middle of the country, what she was doing was she was selling large quantities of meth. Mm -hmm. did, did she think of herself as a drug dealer? I mean, because remember, drug dealers did not have a good reputation in the 1980s. <laughs> yeah. Um, she... Um, in her letters to me, she's, we wrote uh, hundreds of pages of letters to one another while she was in federal prison, and, and um, she thought of herself as kind of a Robin Hood, sort of um, doing her town a favor uh, by making everybody feel good and by selling a drug that allowed poor people to work harder and make more money. Um, she did not think of herself as a drug dealer. In fact, she's very proud of the fact that she contributed large amounts of money to the county sheriff's office and to the local police and did all of these sort of, I don't know, do-gooder kinds of things around town. Um, you know, I mean, I think that's a fairly common yeah. pathology among drug dealers. But yeah. well, let me ask you kind of a challenging question, I guess. Um, at least it challenges me, uh, is this just, on her part, rationalization, or is there some substance to this argument? Well, I think Lori certainly would say that there's substance to it, and I think that there are some people around Ottumwa, Iowa, who probably remember her fondly for the reason that she was an economic force in that town. Um, you know, I mean, I think that the parallel, and, and I, I will... Um, maybe not so artfully or maybe artfully dodge your question <laughs> so completely it's a hard by, one to answer, yeah. by, by pointing out that um, you know in Mexico for instance now um, one of the reasons that the government is deeply ineffective in combating the drug trafficking organizations that Lori Arnold helped to put into place and we can get to that later um, is because the drug traffickers are the ones who keep the street lights on at night, who keep the schools mm -hmm. open, who keep people employed, and they do all of the things that the government is financially unable to do. And there is a tremendous amount of um, sort of a feeling of filial obligation and gratefulness in Mexico to these drug trafficking organizations. My guess is that there was some of that around Ottumwa, Iowa in the early 90s mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for Lori. Yeah, no, I imagine that's true. Um, I imagine that's true. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, there are lots of drugs that are like this that are given to people by doctors, but they tend to be able to be used in a sustainable way. Uh, mm -hmm. The thing about meth, I think, and all street and phetamines, and I would also include cocaine in this category, is they cannot be used in a sustainable way. Is yeah. that they start people on a downward tra trajectory very quickly and inexorably. And they, I mean, I have seen it myself in people, let's just say, who I know well. And it, it is not something that you can do in the long term and expect to survive very long because it makes you completely irrational. That's all, yeah. that's all I can say about it, is it makes you completely irrational. You go yeah. nuts on yeah. it. Um, it may make you feel good for a while, but you definitely go nuts on it. And, and I guess she had to know that. So I'd, um, yeah, I don't know how I feel about it. So let's... Uh, well, we you know what Lori would say is that she was selling very pure, high-class methamphetamine, yeah. and it was the people who were cooking it in their bathtub who was mm -hmm. making everybody crazy. No, yeah. I mean, that, well, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I don't know enough about I the synthesis say. of of methamphetamine to, to, to say anything about that, but, uh, yeah, I kind of doubt it, too. Let's talk about a person that I believe she sold dope to, and that was uh, Roland Jarvis. Is that right? Did she sell dope to Roland, or did he get it on his own? 
Uh, you know, she did. Um, Roland was one of the people who she encountered. Now, uh, Roland was a, a meatpacking worker up in Old Wine, Iowa. So we're talking, I don't know, 200 miles north or 150 miles north, I guess, of Ottumwa. Uh, but, you know, Lori Arnold's reach in her day was far beyond just Iowa. And um, she was, in fact, involved with some kind of middling traffickers up in Old Wine. And so um, she, was, in that way, was also involved with Roland, who was not only an addict, but he was a prolific small-time cook himself. Um and, uh, you know, it's more, it was fascinating to me, actually. The more I would get into this, I would meet people all over the place who knew all of these people in a little tiny town in Iowa. I mean, I'd meet them in California and Arizona, and, um, and it really would give credence to the, uh, I guess, the enormity of the business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I've, I've had similar sorts of experiences. Let's, let's talk about R- R- Roland Jarvis's um, story. He, he was no angel, but he was in a certain way an upstanding citizen before the end, wasn't he? He worked in a meat packing plant. Maybe you could talk a little about him. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so, so again, we'll go back to 1987, and, and uh, at that point, um, there was a sort of what you might call a boutique meat packing plant in in old wine. This was before meat packing plants were all taken over by the same few companies. And in any event, uh, it was called Iowa Ham. <clears throat> and uh, of the 7,500 people in old wine, Iowa, Iowa Ham employed 2,000 of them, uh, which is a, and that's not to say 2,000 of the working age people. That's 2,000 of the inhabitants, which mm-hmm. is a staggering statistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Roland was one of those workers, and uh, Roland was uh, young, and he was uneducated, and he was making 18 bucks an hour, and he wanted to uh, he wanted to make twice that and be able to work double shifts at a at a physically grueling job, and he started doing methamphetamine, which initially was uh, prescribed to him by one of the doctors in the county. Mm-hmm. And um, as it again, we're back in Fayetteville, Arkansas, with yeah, what you saw. Right. And, um, you know, sort of Roland's story takes a turn for the worse when the meatpacking plant gets sold to Gillette and Gillette disbands the union and cuts the wages by two thirds overnight from $18 an hour to $5.60. And, uh, at this point, Roland is doing more math to be able to work harder to make less money mm-hmm. and, it's not long before he does the math and says, well, I can make math and sell it to the other idiots who are going to keep doing this job, and I can make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not, a, not, not, a, not an illogical calculation. I should say there's also a moment here where my story intersects again. It just occurred to me when I was in high school. This was in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, a, a career option for some of my high school compadres was to do what Roland did, and, and we called it throwing hams. Yeah. And when I saw that in your book, I hadn't heard that expression for, you know, literally decades. And this is Roland Jarvis through hams. And I knew exactly what that was. Yeah. Because at the big yeah. meatpacking plants in Wichita, you could go and throw hams and make, you know, at, you could make 12 to 13, 14 dollars an hour to start. This was back when the minimum wage, you know, was was was. 260 or something or 325 and right. and you could just walk into this meatpacking plant and make above $10 an hour so it was a career option for a lot of people I knew people yeah. that did I never did it but I I knew people that threw hams so so Roland gets deeply involved in this and begins to make it maybe you could talk a little bit about how one makes methamphetamine um, so so meth is a purely synthetic drug and and the importance of that is that there's no there's no crop to harvest you know, so you, the drug is not uh, is not victim to the vagaries of, of weather and seasons and things like that. Um, the other thing that's important about meth is that its number one component is pseudoephedrine, and pseudoephedrine is the drug uh, that cold medicine is made from. Pseudoephedrine is why Sudafed is called Sudafed, yeah. um, and 
it's also the drug that in cold med- when you take cold medicine you feel a little bit jumpy um and you know a little buzzy um that's that's because of the effect of the pseudoephedrine uh-huh. and um so you know to make math essentially uh if you're rolling Jarvis and you're doing it on a relatively small scale you're taking pseudoephedrine either in powder form or you're taking cold medicine and you're crushing it up into powder and then you are um, extracting the pseudoephedrine from it by pouring hydrochloric acid onto it um, and then adding uh, things like denatured alcohol and Coleman's lantern fluid and anhydrous ammonium, which is a nitrate compound that's used as a fertilizer. I mean, there's nothing in it that is natural in any way. <laughs> yeah, so it also sounds very dangerous. It's very dangerous, and I mean, Roland is the sort of classic example because he was, uh, and the Roland, you were talking about, you know, a drug that sort of knows no bounds. Roland is locally famous for one time having stayed high on meth for almost an entire lunar cycle, 28 straight days, during which he claims he never slept more than five to ten minutes at a time. Um, That right there would almost be enough to kill you. I mean, that's like, you know, that's like Guantanamo Bay stuff, you know. But, of course, he was... in, In any event, the... I think one can begin to imagine the sort of psychological degradation that takes place when people don't sleep for that long of a period. And one night Roland decided that uh, uh, there were heads growing on the limbs of the trees outside of his mother's house. He used to cook meth in his mother's basement. And uh, these heads somehow related to him the message that uh, the police were coming to take his lab away. So he ran downstairs and he started pouring all these really toxic chemicals down the flood drain, uh, including hydrochloric acid. And uh, then, once he was done with the job, he made the mistake of lighting a cigarette. And he basically blew himself up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, you know, so it's indeed a dangerous way to make a living when you're dealing with all these chemicals. But and, then, then, uh, then he went to jail, is that correct? Well, first he went to the burn unit yes. in in Iowa that the Iowa City or the University of Iowa Hospital. Right, right here and in Iowa City. I know right where it is. And he was uh, he was there for three and a half months. He was, I believe, Roland was thirty seven at the time. In those three and a half months, he had four heart attacks, mm-hmm. and he had skin grafts on seventy eight percent of his body. Uh, he had by the time he got to the hospital, his nose was gone, his fingers were all melted off. Uh, and he somehow survived all of this and went back home, and the very first thing that he did was to get high. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, you know, he'd been in and out of jail, and he continues to be in and out of jail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. I've actually worked a little bit in um, uh, working, I, I guess I, I'd say I've worked with people who have had dependency problems. Um, and, and I know how difficult it can be. Were, were, was treatment widely available, either in the sort of professional form or in the Narcotics Anonymous or, or Alcoholics Anonymous form? Was that widely available to, to meth addicts in places like Old Wine? Uh, Old Wine today has a population of about 6,600 people, and in that town there is um, exactly one chemical dependency counselor. Uh-huh. Uh, so I think the answer is a, a resounding no. Yeah, right. And yeah, no, it's interesting. And no NA chapter or anything like that. No. I think there's an NA chapter in Independence, which is about 12 or 14 miles away. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, the meetings are certainly available, but in terms of any sort of like uh, extended outpatient treatment or. Yeah. Never mind inpatient treatment. There is zero. Yeah. No, we have extended outpatient uh, uh, in in the Iowa City area, and I used to live in Ann Arbor, and I know that they have it up there in Michigan, but I wasn't surprised to learn that it's completely unavailable in 
a place like Oline. And extended outpatient or inpatient can actually be, be quite, a, quite effective in, in my experience. Um, so well, and the thing, you know, the, the thing is that, that when, if you're a town like Oline and you uh, have lost the three basic economic pillars of your, the three, ba- the three, the three pillars of your economy, then uh, simple things like keeping the high school open yeah. or keeping the street lights on at night are no longer foregone conclusions. Where in the hell are you going to come up with money yeah. for treatment programs? Yeah, no, that's 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 exactly right. And I, I mean, I yeah, they're, they're very blessed in Ann Arbor. I can tell you that. I worked I worked at, uh, with them a little bit, and um, they they, uh, they they do a fine job. And in Iowa City, there are, are programs available, a lot of programs available. Um, but I certainly can understand why they might not be available in a place like Olwine. And and without them, I I just don't think that. You know, I. I I don't think these people had a chance. Let's let's talk a little bit about um, the the people that were uh, trying to keep the lights on and um, trying to keep people like Roland Jarvis away from the drugs and and treating him. And I'm thinking of three people in particular. I guess they are Larry Murphy. He's the mayor. Is that right? Of Oline? Yeah. And then there's um, Nathan Leon. Yeah. He's the prosecutor in the county. Right. Assistant county prosecutor. Yeah, assistant county prosecutor. And there's Clay Halberg. Halberg? Hallberg, Hallberg, yeah. and he was—he's the local doctor. Let's let's start with um, Mr. Hallberg, who is a or Dr. Hallberg, who is a, kind of an amazing character in and of himself. Yeah. Um, so so Clay is the son of the old wine, the guy who was the old wine town doctor for you know forty years before him or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he, he was Marcus Welby by your description. Basically, he was uh, the the country doctor out of a Norman Rockwell poster. He he pretty much was, and uh, you know, right down to you know, delivering babies in barns and yeah, all kinds of right. stuff. And he was also the county coroner for a while, so he sort of had the he had both endpoints of the continuum yeah. covered, you know. And um, uh, so you know, Clay was one of uh, five, or is one of five children, all of whom were adopted, which I think is interesting. Um, and uh, Clay is, is a, one half of a set of twins, um, and uh, him and his brother left town to be educated, and ultimately the Clay's twin went to law school, and Clay went to medical school, and then both of them, I mean, this is typical of, you know, of, of the, seven, the late 70s when people, you know, things were sort of going downhill and people were leaving these towns in, in big numbers. Uh, but Clay and his brother did something uh, kind of remarkable, which is that they came home um, out of a sense of, of obligation and, and to, to make things better. And his brother took the job as the county public defender, and Clay sort of took over the mantle from his father as the the town general practitioner. And um, you know, fast forward to when I met him, and by then his brother had moved away because he was so tired of meth addicts gathering on his porch at two in the morning, wanting to know why they had why he hadn't gotten their friends out of jail. And Clay at that point, by 2003, 04, 05, 90% of what he was seeing in his office was somehow related to meth. Mm-hmm. And it took a great toll on him. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he, you know, the toll that it took on him actually it, it took the form of a dependence itself, didn't it? Yeah, and, and, and Clay uh, became an increasingly uh profound alcoholic as 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 time went on um and in fact you know back to our treatment discussion uh when clay got sober he chose to um drive down to Iowa City a couple nights a week mm-hmm. to attend meetings there now that is not it's not the longest drive in the world but it's got to be what 85 miles yeah. that sound about yeah. right yeah um, one way, you know, so I mean, you know, even Clay, even the doctor himself couldn't find a way to be treated in his own town. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 that is a remarkable uh, irony. But he did get clean, though, didn't he? He did, and Clay is, has been sober, I believe, three and a half years wow. now. Wow, well, congratulations to him. So let's, let's talk about another, uh, your book is full of these amazing characters, um, Nathan uh, Leon, who, I guess I have to ask this, I have young children, 
and I'm wondering whether they're going to be, uh, I'm pretty tall myself, whether they're going to be tall. <laughs> Nathan's parents are what, like six foot and five six or something, and he's six nine? Is that right? Yeah, his, well, yeah, his mom's about 5'9", his dad's about 6 foot. Uh-huh, so, yeah. I mean, they're not small. By <laughs> no, means, but, but they're not 6'9". <laughs> no. So no. Nathan's a big guy. And, and he, uh, he, why don't you tell us his story? You know, Nathan's story is not dissimilar to Clay's in some way. Um, uh, he uh, also went to college where, and now, now, now Nathan, Clay grew up in town, the son of the of the town doctor, which is a certainly, I think, a, anybody would agree is a relative position of, of privilege. Uh, Nathan grew up on a 480-acre corn and bean farm about 12 miles outside of town in a hundred and some odd year old house, um, and uh, also had several siblings. I believe he has four brothers and sisters. And in any event. Um, Nathan uh, put himself through through college, where he, uh, you know, he, he, he graduated and, and, and went on to law school um, in in Indiana. So he sort of like Clay, he kind of got out, you know, um, and then uh, he went on to get a master's in law, and uh, but then um, decided to come home and. Um, when he did come home, he had uh, was contacted by the mayor, Larry Murphy, and um, offered the job of assistant county prosecutor. And, and, and really the mandate that was given to him and to the prosecutor's office, this was back in 2002, was to clean up methamphetamine because the mayor at the time had a had a, a plan that if old wine was ever going to make any sort of economic comeback, they would have to be able to lure business from outside of the town and outside of the region, and they were never going to be able to do that if uh, people like Roland Jarvis were blowing their houses up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the mayor you're talking about is Larry Murphy, who, again, is... Uh a pretty remarkable person. He's he's right out of uh, the kind of typical American. I don't know if it's typical, but he's he's a booster in the best sense of the word. He is, and and he's from uh, he's from Dubuque, Iowa, um, and came from this very large Irish Catholic family, almost all of whom I think he originally had nine siblings, and and there are seven surviving or something. Um, all of them involved in either state politics or some form of, you know, Larry's a guy who organized his first labor union. I think there were two members, him and his brother, <laughs> at the age of 15 in a grocery store in Dubuque in, you know, 1962 or something. Um, but that's just the kind of sort of, he's just one of these sort of can-do guys, yeah. you know. Um, and he served for a long time in the state senate. Um, and ran for governor and was, he was considered to be kind of a shoe-in, uh, and he lost at the last moment. And uh, at that point, he decided he would, uh, he wanted to be the mayor of his adopted hometown of Old Wine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so he's got plans, and he's got Nathan and Clay uh, on board with this. And uh, then there's the uh, chief of police, and I don't recall his name. It was another Jeremy Logan. Yeah, Jeremy Logan, exactly. Maybe you could say a few words about him. Well, and, and there again, it's a, this interesting story where, you know, Jeremy Logan was a hometown guy who um, was a sergeant in the police force, uh, the police force of old wine. Again, you've got this town that has lost all the bases of its economic, of its economy, and the police force had this, Reputation. It was. It was. Old Wine had become known as a really rough town, and um, the police force had this uh, almost like legendary reputation for impropriety. And uh, Logan is a sergeant, and Murphy is in his first term as mayor. And there's this scandal about the chief of police, and then suddenly there's a scandal about. Logan having to do with a young girl in town, and it was sort of obvious that the chief of police was sort of smearing Logan's name, and uh, or maybe it wasn't obvious. You know, it was a 
big dust up in town, you know, and somehow out of it, Logan, the accused sergeant, turns up to be, turns out to be the police chief. Um, he gets the job. Murphy just fires the old chief and gives Logan the job. And again, um, the 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 deal was you're now the police chief and your number one thing is you've got to get small lab meth production out of here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I Logan, guess I was going to say one one um thing that occurred to me was that there was a in terms of crafting the story there's there's a way in which you could have almost set it up a little bit high noon like except in, in this instance uh, Gary Cooper c- convinces everybody to get on board with protecting the town and I'm thinking of Murphy and Leanne and Hallberg and and Logan together trying to clean the town up but you know things are never that simple uh, because you're not sure who's wearing the white hat and who's wearing the black hat and these people all live cheek by jowl and yeah. and, and I guess you know one thing that occurred to me while I was reading the book is that this is really a very tough problem. We use this phrase cleaning up quite cavalierly, at least I do. But, you know, like my wife, I believe, is a member of the ACLU, and Mm -hmm. I don't think she would like what they did at all. Um, And I think most Americans, especially the bi-coastal Americans, would not uh, would think that this was what they did in order to clean the town up was really quite inappropriate. How did they negotiate it themselves? Well, um, you know, and I don't think that they did anything illegal. No, I at don't all. think so either. No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, and the reason they didn't is because Murphy and, and Logan were very careful to include the county pros- the, the county attorney and the assistant county prosecutor on everything that they did to make sure. And now, when I say everything that they did, it, it sounds uh, somehow, you know, like drum roll, please, or something like that. All they did was uh, sort of the small-town version of what Rudolph Giuliani did in New York when I was living there, which is to say that we've got big problems like a high murder rate, and the way we're going to tackle it is to uh, make sure that we don't let any of the small crimes go unnoticed because that will lead us to the perpetrators of the big crimes. worked great in New York. I, I think that Giuliani is sort of Satan personified, but I will never uh, be willing to uh, disparage him for the job that that he did in New York. I mean, when I first moved there, it was a mess, and within a few years, it it wasn't. And I think that's kind of true in old wine, except, you know, there, um, you know, they had a lot of people who were cooking meth in their cars and trucks as they drove along. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because meth production stinks, literally, mm-hmm. and these people would uh, drive around in hopes of dispersing the smell. So you had this mobile army of meth cooks all around the town and the county. So uh, I think logically uh, they started uh, pulling over cars and trucks for any legal reason that they that they could for any violation you know whether it was speeding over whether it was being five miles an hour over the speed limit or mm-hmm. having a broken tail light which is an infraction of the law mm-hmm. um and uh, that allowed a police officer to then approach the vehicle and you know they were cooking meth <laughs> then <laughs> it was fairly obvious and uh you know so i don't see any i don't see that what they did was ran afoul of anything um but people in town did mm-hmm. that, that's the problem and what did they say well people in town said uh you know you're uh you're acting like you're the police chief of chicago you know you're acting like we're all criminals and you're acting like five miles an hour over the speed limit is a problem that's that hasn't been a problem in our town for 50 years you know what's your what's what's your deal and, uh, you know, when I first got there, people were very divided over this. Um, they were very divided over the idea that um, that the police would be suspicious of their own kind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But so let me just one of the most interesting things to me as somebody who rides his bike all the time. I live in mm-hmm. Iowa City. It's a small town. I ride my bike to work. I ride my bike home. Uh, at, at one point, they banned. Am I, am I correct about this? They banned mm-hmm. uh, bicycle riding downtown. That's right, and 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 um, so you've got people who are manufacturing meth in their homes. So the 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 police 
uh, start to get a handle on that. So these people come out of their homes and they start cooking meth in their cars and trucks. So the police start to get a handle on that. So these meth cooks figured out a way that you don't even need a lab to cook meth. All you need is a 20-ounce Pepsi bottle. And they would strap it to the, you know, like the mountain rack or yep. whatever it's called on their mountain bikes. Uh-huh. And they would ride around cooking methamphetamine. I, I, I very distinctly remember the first time I, I went to Old Wine. It was, it was uh, May 9th of, of, of 2005. And at about 3 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday, I was driving around one of the neighborhoods. And there were these, these kids riding their bikes cooking meth. Hmm. And... So anyway, the city council said, at the very least, we cannot have this happening on Main Street. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody's ever going to come here and open new stores or whatever if we've got kids riding around cooking meth on their bicycles. Mm-hmm. So you cannot ride your bike downtown anymore. Mm, that's amazing. So uh, uh, the, the these these efforts on the part of um, uh, Murphy and Leanne and Halberg and Logan and, and and the rest of the sort of civic leaders they they, they prove successful. You know, they they proved very successful in terms, of, actually, on on both fronts, and, and both fronts being number one, getting meth out of out of town or the obvious parts of meth out of town, mm-hmm. and number two, luring business. Um, and um, you know, at one point, um, the old wine police were uh, dismantling one meth lab every three days mm-hmm. uh, within six months they got that down to zero mm-hmm. uh, that's a I don't know of any I mean I've read a lot of statistics on what places have been able to do with their math problem and I don't think I've ever read I don't think I've ever heard of success that quick and that mm-hmm. complete mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah and, and, and they, they, they were able to uh, get a bunch of companies to move uh, not a bunch but three or four they've added a lot of work Problem, of course, is that you know, small lab meth manufacturer only comprises about 15% of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of it is brought by major drug trafficking mm-hmm. organizations, mm-hmm. and you know, as doesn't matter how many civil liberties you're willing to infringe upon, the old wine police are not going to get a handle on the Ariano Felix organization. Yeah, no, they're not. But there, there was success also on a number of fronts uh, on a kind of national... I don't know if it's a national level or not, but I was buying um, some cold medicine this... Uh, I guess it was January or something in cold season, and uh, I was buying some Sudafed or something, and they make you sign for it now. Right, Is, right. That, tr- is that true all over the United States, or is that an Iowa thing? Well, you're, you have to sign for it everywhere, but... Um, whether you can either do it in a computerized manner or you can do it where you literally sign your name in a logbook. I, I sign my name in a logbook. And that is possibly the most ridiculous <laughs> I was gonna say. thing in the world. I mean, because, you know, the idea is that people can't buy more than a certain amount of cold medicine and then go make it into methamphetamine. Well, you know, are we really prepared as taxpayers to pay the police to go through hundreds of thousands of names and hundreds of thousands of pages of logbooks? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. It, it's, it's just foolishness, and yeah, that's no. all thanks to the pharmaceutical lobby. Yeah, we didn't get a chance to talk much about the pharmaceutical lobby, but they did a good job of protecting... Um, one of their uh, treasures, and that is the kind of cold medicine trade. Um, true. Yeah, they, they did a nice job of that. So where um, where does methamphetamine stand today in the United States? Is it increasing or decreasing, or uh, is there anything general we can say about it? Well, it appears to be, you know, meth use has not gone down. Uh, the amount of methamphetamine available appears to be stable what it's being made from and where it's being made um, has changed a little bit. It's still pseudoephedrine, but a lot more of it is actually coming from crushed up cold pills. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the reason being that this law was so incredibly ineffective. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that a, a realist who would be looking at this from, you know, DEA's perspective, 
um, would say right now it's in a holding pattern waiting to explode again because it's not going to take long for these big trafficking organizations to to figure out how to how do you uh, increase their sales again mm-hmm. and and or increase them from this sort of from from this from the the, the the plateau that the market seems to be in so I don't know that's not very hopeful but unfortunately it's just Yeah, well, I mean, I think the thing that Bear's saying is that the structural conditions that um, brought about the uh, increased demand for methamphetamine are are still with us. I mean, I can tell you, you certainly know in Missouri and I know in Iowa, that it's not as if small towns like Olwine are prospering. I mean, we talk about, it's funny because we talk a lot in Iowa about things like alternative energy and ethanol and and, and wind power and things like this, um, as if they were uh, going to save these places. And, yeah. and they're not. Uh, no. they, they might help, but I I do know that um, yeah, it's a it's a, it's a tough time for the flyover territory. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, we're resilient people, and we'll we'll weather the storm. But um, it's a tough time. Let me let me just say say one more thing, or ask you about one more thing. One one of the uh, as as a kind of someone who formerly dabbled in, in journalism himself uh one of the messages of your book is that the national press just missed this story entirely or maybe not entirely there's a fellow in oregon i guess that did a good job with it um but but mostly they they told a kind of a strange tale of um sort of whacked out midwesterners um uh getting high on this kind of new dope and then the story was dropped i also remember there was a lot of discussion of uh what was called meth mouth yeah, as as if that mattered at all. But anyway, right. maybe you could talk a little bit about the the way in which it was covered in the press. Well, you know, I think that you know the, the to me and what this book is about is that meth is not the problem anywhere, whether it's in Old Wine or a Tumwater or down the street here in Greenville, Illinois. That really, it's just a symptom of a larger economic problem essentially and that economic problem is 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 based on uh basically late stage capitalism vertical integration of the industries that provide revenue to much of the middle of the country and um now essentially suck revenue out of these places uh because they're vertically integrated and 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 meth is just sort of a meth to me was a a chance to look at those things mm-hmm. um, so when newspapers from the New York Times to the Los Angeles Times and everybody in between, including the Des Moines Register, wrote for two and a half years about Roland Jarvis essentially you know, wrote about the guy making meth in his house, they just missed an opportunity to see it for what it is, which is not a problem, it's the symptom, or Mm -hmm. it's a symptom, you know. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there was this backlash um, in the media where all of a sudden after so much coverage, then the coverage became... Well, there never was a meth epidemic. Meth has been overblown. Meth is a is meth is a big nothing, mm-hmm. and that too completely misses the point, you know, which is that meth is a symptom, mm-hmm. and 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 that the problems are much more complicated and profound and far-reaching. And so, you know, you say, well, where is old wine today, and where is meth today? Well, you know, meth. Meth remains stable, but the problem is that the economic difficulties and the, and the, and the socio-cultural difficulties of a place like Old Wine, Iowa, haven't changed at all. And mm-hmm. there doesn't appear to be any chance of that changing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, meth is going to continue to be a problem there. You know, mm-hmm. it just is. Mm-hmm. That's simple. Yes, that's a kind of a sad oh. note to end on, but I believe you're probably <laughs> right about that. I'm sticking it out here in the Midwest, though, and I'm you know we'll, see, we'll see what we can do. I ain't going nowhere. Um, the, um, the we've taken up a lot of your time today. Let me uh, ask you our um, Nick. Let me ask you our f- uh, traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, well, what is your next project? What are you working on now? Do you have a book in the works or a magazine article or something like this? Um, you know, I I have a an idea that I'm 
I haven't quite fully hatched yet, but I, I, what I'd really like to do is to take uh, some of the um, some of the ideas in Mathland and expand them a little bit more. And, and what I mean by that again is this: uh, what I think is the association between, um, you know, what I would call late stage capitalism and particularly with the meatpacking industry being a prime example. Mm-hmm. and uh, U.S. immigration policy mm-hmm. and drug trafficking. Mm-hmm. And um, and I would like to, to write more about that. So I think I've got a place that I'm going to land next, and it is not very far from where I live here in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, I think that's, I mean, that's a little bit vague, but I haven't quite figured out my way into it yet mm-hmm. but I, I think that the i think that some of those ideas uh i would hope deserve another and and bigger canvas to to for you know to to, to paint on or whatever mm-hmm. no that's right no that's good i yeah well i i hope that you're uh i hope you complete the book soon and i hope that you agree to be on the show again when it comes out i'd really appreciate yeah. that well uh, uh, nick redding it's been um great to talk to you today the book is methland the death and life of an american small town the small town being oloin iowa just a, a little bit north of where i sit right now so nick thanks very much for being on the show we appreciate it yeah the pleasure was all mine okay take care bye-bye bye You've been listening to an interview with Nick Redding, author of Methland, The Death and Life of an American Small Town. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Music